Good morning. Uh, it's good to be together this morning. My name is Jill McNabney. Um, I'm a longtime storyliner, and I'm a teacher at Lakeshore High School. Uh, and there are a lot of things that I love about my job. Um, I love that I get to work with kids. I love that I get to teach something that I'm really passionate about and try to instill that passion in my students. Um, and I also really love my coworkers um, because I work with some truly great people. And so for about the first decade of my teaching career, I got to have lunch every day with two of my favorite people, Mark Ring and Mike Gathright. Now, we don't do this anymore because Mike doesn't work past 10 and lunchtime really seems to cut into his nap time. Um, but over the years, this time that we spent together went through some different seasons. And so when, you know, when Mark and I were brand new teachers seeking out Mike's seasoned advice, um, we would spend a lot of time talking about like how to handle difficult situations in our classrooms or how to get better at our jobs. Um, but we obviously mastered that very quickly and then moved on. Um, so then there was a span of a few years where we were just writing talks for Mike. Um, but after a while, Mark and I realized that we weren't getting any credit for it, and so that stopped. Um, but you know, there was one conversation that we would frequently come back to that we still bring up when we're together today, which is, what could we do that would bring us more happiness than teaching? Which is sort of a strange conversation for us to have because all three of us enjoy teaching and we're all pretty good at it. But it just feels like there's always something just beyond our reach uh, that could maybe make us happier. Now, for as long as we've had this conversation, all three of us have always had a different answer to this question. So Mike doesn't mind working hard, but just wants to be paid well for it. And so he always asks the question like, what could we invent or do to become millionaires? Um, in fact, at one point in time, he had a folder on his desk labeled Million Dollar Ideas. Um, now, I don't know if like become the lead teacher at a local church was in that folder, um, but maybe he's just still making his way through the list. Uh, Mark isn't so interested in making a lot of money as, as he is in just not having to work at all. Uh, and so Mark's idea of happiness is to get paid without working, which I mean actually works out pretty well for a teacher every summer. Um, now for me, I don't mind working, and I don't feel like I need a lot of money, and so my answer to this question comes from feeling like, you know, if I could just get my life together, then I'd be happier. Like, oftentimes it feels like I'm constantly just raking dishes from under the bed, but if I could just figure it out and get it under control, then I'd be happier. So numerous philosophers throughout history have argued that the motivating factor for all human behavior is happiness. Sigmund Freud said it like this, what do men show by their behavior to be the purpose and intention of their lives? What do they demand of life and wish to achieve in it? The answer to this can hardly be in doubt. They strive after happiness. They want to become happy and to remain so. Blaise Pascal said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So I think it's safe to say that even though we all have different answers to the question of 
what we think will bring us happiness, everyone wants to be happy. In his book, Stumbling on Happiness, Daniel Gilbert makes a case for why all people everywhere wrongly predict what will make them happy. We think we know what we want, but if or when we get it, it hardly ever makes us as happy as we imagined it would. And this seems to hold true for everything from a new car, house, or job to a new spouse or child. And you know, it's not that those things don't bring us any happiness, but he suggests they don't bring us nearly as much happiness as we imagined or expected them to. Now, I think it's important to point out that when we're talking about happiness, we're talking about a deeper desire than mere pleasure. Uh, because pleasure is not the same thing as happiness. And I think we all get that on some level, but it's actually a scientific fact. Uh, pleasure is about dopamine, the neurotransmitter that immediately activates the reward system in our brain from things like food, sex, caffeine, or other drugs. Happiness is about serotonin, the neurotransmitter that's released due to exercise, reduced stress levels, or exposure to sunlight. One author describes it like this. Pleasure is about the next hit to feel good in the moment. Happiness is about contentment over the long haul, a sense that my life is rich and satisfying as it is. Pleasure is about want. Happiness is about freedom from want. You know, I've never really thought about the difference between pleasure and happiness until I was researching for this talk, but it makes a lot of sense to me, and it actually reminds me of something that we talked about last week. Um, you know, last Sunday we looked at how our strongest desires are not the same as our deepest desires. And that really resonated with me, and I think it's because oftentimes our strongest desires are about pleasure, while our deepest desires are about happiness. We all long to be happy, to be free from wanting, but, and this is something else we looked at last week, our disordered hearts seem to choose pleasure over happiness almost all the time. And this doesn't mean that pleasure is bad, it just means that our hearts can be out of order. So why is that? Well, according to Gilbert, just about any time we want something, a promotion, a marriage, an automobile, a cheeseburger, we're expecting that if we get it, then the person who has our fingerprints a second, minute, day, or decade from now will enjoy the world they inherit from us. In other words, we often make decisions, choose a course of action that we think will free us from wanting in the future and thus make us happy. But the problem is, we're actually really bad at making these decisions. And a lot of that has to do with how the pursuit of pleasure, our strongest desires in the moment, get in the way and sometimes even sabotage our deepest desires for a life of happiness. So this morning is the second gathering in our new series, The Way of Jesus, uh, the practices that Jesus displayed in his life. And these ways or practices or disciplines are not things we have to do in order to please or appease God. Uh, they're ways of living that, in time, train us and transform us into people with the desire and ability to live the life we were created for. And for that to happen, our hearts have to be in order. 
we have to have the desire and ability to choose happiness over pleasure. This is what Jesus referred to as the abundant life. But there's another reason why this doesn't come to us naturally. So studies show that we grossly overestimate the intensity and duration of the role pleasure plays in happiness. Within a year, most lottery winners and paraplegics have returned to the exact same level of happiness they had before winning the money or being in the accident. It, it seems that our temporary happiness levels are sensitive to changes in our life, but, and this is the critical element the research points out time and time again, once we've become accustomed to those changes, we go back to our normal level of happiness. So this is referred to as the adaptation effect. It's the tendency all humans have to quickly return to a relatively stable level of happiness despite major positive or negative life events. This is why we look forward to something so much, get it, and then two days later are on to the next thing. The adaptation effect is sometimes referred to as the hedonic treadmill because no matter how hard we try to gain an increase in happiness, we generally just stay in the same place. And scientists have actually discovered that each individual has a personal set point for their particular level of happiness that is genetically programmed. So some people's genes code for making them happy most of the time, while others are apparently doomed to go through life with a permascowl. Studies of identical twins have shown that anywhere between 50 to 80% of all the variation among people in their average levels of happiness can be attributed directly to differences in their genes rather than in their life experiences. The adaptation effect is constantly working against us to return us to our genetic happiness set point. And we see this play out across the world. You know, as the level of wealth in many industrialized countries has doubled or even tripled in the last half century, the levels of happiness and satisfaction with life have not changed. And depression has actually become more common. You know, more money has led to huge improvements in being more comfortable in life, but through the adaptation effect, those improvements have become normal to us, expected. We've adapted to this. And so we take it for granted, which means it can't make us any happier or more satisfied. Someone once told me if you have to choose what you win or lose, you can't have everything. Don't you take chances? You might feel the pain. Don't you love in vain? Love won't set you free. I could stay on by the side and watch this life pass me by. So unhappy, but safe as could be. So what if it hurts me? So what if I break down? 
So what if this world just throws me off the edge and my feet run out of ground? I gotta find my way. I wanna hear my sound. Don't care about all the pain in front of me. I'm just trying to be happy. Yeah. I just wanna be happy. Holding on tightly, just can't let it go. Just trying to play my role and slowly disappear. Oh, but all these days they feel like they're the same. Just different faces, different names. Get me out of here. Well, I can't stand by the side and watch this life pass me by. So what if it hurts me? So what if I break down? So what if this world just throws me off the edge? My feet run out of ground. I gotta find my care about all the pain in front of me cause I'm just trying to be happy so many turns that I can't see like I'm a stranger on this road but don't say don't say anything. So what if it hurts me? So what if I break down? So what if this world just throws me off the edge? My feet run out of ground. I gotta find my place. I wanna hear my sound. Don't care about all the pain in front. Just wanna be happy. Yeah. I just wanna be happy. So our deepest desire for happiness turns out to be a really good thing. Uh, studies have shown that being happy can add as many as nine years to a person's life expectancy. So the real question is, is there anything we can do to overcome our tendency to choose our strongest desires for pleasure over our deepest desires for happiness? And somehow in the process, make a lasting change to our genetic happiness set point? Is it possible to make ourselves happier than our genes code for and our disordered hearts continue to choose? Are we able to counter these things? And it turns out the answer to our question is yes. And this is going to lead us into the first specific way of Jesus, the practice 
of gratitude. And it is yet another example where modern science backs up the ancient wisdom of Jesus. According to social psychologist Robert Emmons, we discovered scientific proof that when people regularly engage in the systematic cultivation of gratitude, they experience a variety of measurable benefits, psychological, physical, and interpersonal. The evidence on gratitude contradicts the widely held view that all people have a set point of happiness that cannot be reset by any known means. In some cases, people have reported that gratitude led to transformative life changes. People who practice gratitude seem measurably happier and are more pleasant to be around. So Emmons has conducted multiple studies on gratitude for over the past decade and has found that adults who keep gratitude journals on a regular basis exercise more consistently, have fewer symptoms of illness, feel better about their lives as a whole, and are more optimistic about the future. They cope more effectively with everyday stress, have better relationships with people, and feel closer to God. They feel more loving, forgiving, joyful, enthusiastic, and happy. It, it turns out gratitude is literally one of the few things that can measurably change people's lives, which is why it's one of the practices Jesus is inviting us into. You know, it's so ironic, tragic really, that Americans tend to rank happiness as very important to them, but gratitude as unimportant. It's like we know our deepest desire, but have no idea how to pursue it. In studies of how different cultures express gratitude in different ways, it was discovered that Americans tend to say thank you a lot more than other cultures, but it seems that we also lack a deep understanding of what it means to be truly grateful. And part of the reason for this stems from the way we express and view gratitude. So when someone does something nice for us, we may say like, thanks, I owe you one, or how can I ever repay you? And thinking of gratitude in this way makes it much more transactional than relational. Yet at the heart of the word gratitude is the root word gratis, which is also the root word for grace. And grace is nothing if not relational. And relationships, the best relationships, are not transactional, they are transformational. You know, grace is free, unearned, and only accepted within the context of a relationship with God. Theologian Karl Barth once said, grace and gratitude go together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo. Gratitude follows grace as thunder follows lightning. You know, experiencing God's grace as a free gift induces natural feelings of gratitude in the context of a relationship, not a transaction. Now, just a little science side note here. Uh, we live in what's called an ultra-social society, which basically means that within our culture, there are millions of individuals who reap the benefits of extensive divisions of labor. And that's true for all of us in this room and really anyone living in a developed country. Uh, but this is not unique to the human species. Ultrasociality actually evolved independently at least four different times in the animal kingdom. But for all non-human ultrasocial species, this happened because of kin altruism. Working together is beneficial for these organisms because they share a majority of their genes. 
So for example, bees living in the same hive, they're all siblings, and so the immense levels of like cooperation and self-sacrifice among them are worth the individual risk because they're all one big family. But that's obviously not true for humans. I mean, we've developed a culture that relies on having to trust and work together with people who are not closely related to us. And so instead of kin altruism, we developed an automatic reciprocity reflex. Someone does you a favor, and you automatically want to repay that favor. It's somewhat transactional, but it's also what has allowed us to build complex cooperative relationships. Now, where does gratitude come into all of this? Well, it seems as though gra grateful feelings may have evolved precisely because they're such a useful tool for helping us build large cooperative social groups. So at its most basic level, the biological purpose of gratitude is connection. It's a relational response to what we've been freely given. The word thanks and its various forms, such as thankful and thanksgiving, appear over 150 times in the Bible. When we take communion as a way to connect with God, the word we use to describe this is Eucharist, which literally means giving thanks to God. There isn't a religion on earth that believes thanksgiving is unimportant. I mean, it's universally endorsed. And one of the most famous instances of gratitude in all ancient literature comes from the Bible. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem, and as he enters a village, ten men with leprosy all shout out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The Bible says, taking a good look at them, Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priests. They went, and while still on their way, became clean. One of them, when he realized that he was healed, turned around and came back, shouting his gratitude, glorifying God. He kneeled at Jesus' feet, so grateful. He couldn't thank him enough, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus said, were not ten healed? Where are the other nine? Can none be found to come back and give glory to God except this outsider? Then he said to him, get up, on your way. Your faith has healed and saved you. So lots of commentaries on this passage imply that Jesus wasn't referring to faith in the sense of belief here but rather to gratefulness, as in your gratitude has healed and saved you. It has made you whole, made you well. Before returning to Jesus, this man was already healed from his disease. I mean, he was already physically well, but gratitude allowed him to experience more than just physical healing. The other nine were healed from their leprosy, and I'm sure they felt grateful for that, but there's a difference between feeling grateful and being grateful. And the truly transformative powers of gratitude only work when we choose to be grateful, even when we may not feel like it. You know, times that challenge us physically, emotionally, or spiritually may make it almost impossible for us to feel grateful. Yet we can still train to be grateful by practicing gratitude during those moments. I just got a text from Nancy saying she got a cute text thanking her and 25 other people for gifts or services they may have given in the past. Oh, don't. 
I'm glad she liked it. By the way, mom, it took like one second. Yeah, I know it took like one second because it shows. You didn't even spell out thank you. You texted THX, the number four, and the gift emoji. You, you literally phoned it in. Times have changed, lady. Not be a lady. Called being efficient. You're just mad because you got to use the biggest thought on your phone and you still have to squint to see it. Ha ha, I'm old. Okay, look. Here's how it's going to go down. As long as you are living here rent-free and I am busting my hump to pay for your cereal and your fancy shaving cream with aloe, you are going to write those thank you notes on paper with your own hand and it's got to fill the page. Are we clear? Okay, fine. That's all I just write under there. Oh, Wrong. It's chilled. How does that sound? I think you know the answer to that. Ah, try to use a lot of words. Six months since I have to fill the page. Well, actually, it's not that hard. Just write the way you talk. Okay, here's how I talk. This sucks. I didn't ask for any of these stupid presents. They just came. Did baby Jesus have to write thank you notes to the wise men? Was Mary all on him like, oh, thank you for the matter. I'll be sure to use it next time I put matter on stuff. Actually, Jesus did the ultimate thank you. Yes, but he didn't have to write anything. <laughs> okay, so even though Axel is being forced to write thank you notes when he clearly doesn't feel grateful, the act of expressing gratitude can actually help us to become more grateful people. By living the gratefulness we don't feel, we start to feel the gratefulness we live. And that's the difference between looking at gratitude as a feeling versus an attitude with an action, a way, or a practice. When we adopt the attitude of gratitude, it reorders, transforms our hearts, allowing us to consciously choose happiness over pleasure, making our strongest desires the same as our deepest desires. So gratitude is not simply a form of positive thinking or a self-help strategy for how to be happier. I mean, far from being a warm and fuzzy sentiment, Gratitude is both morally and intellectually demanding. And because of that, it takes training and it takes practice. Theologian and priest Henry Nouwen said, gratitude involves a conscious choice. I can choose to be grateful even when my emotions and feelings are steep and hurt and resentful. It's amazing how many occasions present themselves in which I can choose gratitude instead of a complaint. I can choose to be grateful when I'm criticized even when my heart responds in bitterness. I can choose to listen to the voices that forgive and to look at the faces that smile, even while I still hear words of revenge and see grimaces of hatred. Adopting the attitude of gratitude means that we make a conscious decision to see blessings instead of curses, to see the opportunities and obstacles, the chances presented in challenges. And this is really where the power of gratitude lies. I mean, in the sense of wonder and thankfulness and appreciation. The practice of gratitude empowers us to savor positive life experiences and situations so that we're able to get the maximum satisfaction and, and enjoyment from our circumstances. And social scientists think that this is how gratitude can change our genetic set point for happiness. By not taking the good things in life for granted, Gratitude disrupts, it sabotages the adaptation effect. And our happiness level resets to a new 
and higher point. We see this attitude of gratitude uh, with action, the practice of gratitude at work in many people throughout the Bible, but especially in the life of the Apostle Paul. In his letter to the Philippians, the words joy and rejoice appear 16 times in just four chapters, despite the fact that he was writing this letter from prison where he was awaiting a trial that could have resulted in his death. From his prison cell, he wrote, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, or having plenty and of being in need. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. That's amazing. And of course, it's easy to say that we should be grateful no matter what the circumstances But it's not easy to do. I mean, there seems to be this underlying paradox where the evidence is clear that cultivating gratitude makes us measurably happier and healthier. It leads us into the life that we were created for. But it's still really difficult to practice gratitude on a daily basis. Several years ago, I had hip surgery, uh, which involved having to take six weeks off of work. Now, thankfully, as a teacher, I was already off for three of those six weeks, so that worked out pretty well. Um, But I wasn't able to be very mobile or independent during that time. And so, you know, I thought about what would be something that I could do during my recovery that would be worthwhile. And I decided that I would write a note of gratitude to a different person in my life every day. Now, this is before I had ever read any of the studies on the personal impacts of gratitude. I just thought it would be nice to show some appreciation to other people. And when I started, my list only had like, 10 or 15 people on it, and I had no idea how I was going to pull this off for six weeks. But the more notes of gratitude that I wrote, the more people I added to my list. And I think that was because, you know, not only did I experience the personal benefits, but I also saw how that simple task transformed so many relationships in my life. Now, that was three and a half years ago. It was a completely positive and life-changing experience for me. And yet, I haven't done it since. I mean, here's the thing. Developing the attitude of gratitude takes work and effort and intentionality. But that is precisely why there's a direct link between gratitude and happiness. You know, certain conditions in our life have the potential to bring us happy, to our happiness set point. You know, conditions like wealth, influence, and marital status. But the adaptation effect makes us so accustomed to these conditions that we take them for granted and our satisfaction or happiness with them seems to just level out. So for example, studies have found that people report much higher levels of happiness when they're engaged to be married and just after they get married than when they've been married for one year or longer. So this seems to suggest if you want to be happy, you should definitely get engaged, but then just like stay engaged forever. Uh, But that's not what's really going on here, right? So when people are anticipating marriage and are newlyweds, the adaptation effect hasn't occurred yet. Their happiness set point hasn't adjusted to this new condition of their life. But once they've adapted to this, it just becomes the norm. And even though it's a really great new part of their life, their happiness inevitably sets back to their set point. And this is why developing the discipline, the practice, the way of gratitude is so critical. When we voluntarily choose to do things, 
things that take focused effort and attention, it's really difficult for those things to disappear from our awareness. By the way, this is going to be a theme for all the ways of Jesus. The attitude of gratitude doesn't succumb to the adaptation effect precisely because it takes practice and intentionality. This is how the practice of gratitude is training, transforming, and getting our hearts back in order. And this is why feeling grateful and being grateful are not the same thing. So even when we don't feel like it, one of the best things we can do for ourselves and our relationships with others and with God is to express gratitude. One theologian said, the basic human response to God is not fear and not guilt, but thanksgiving. You've been so kind and generous I don't know how you keep on giving Oh, your kindness, I'm in debt to you for your selflessness, my admiration for everything you've done. You know I'm bound. I'm bound to thank you for it. Na 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 You've been so kind and generous. I don't know how you keep on giving for your kindness. I'm in debt to you.
The reason all people everywhere wrongly predict what will make them happy is because if Mike makes a million dollars or Mark figures out how to get paid without working or I manage to get my life together, all of those things will fall victim to the adaptation effect. One author puts it like this, without gratitude, what was extraordinary yesterday becomes ordinary today. Without gratitude, a sense of entitlement takes over and begins to rot our soul. Without gratitude, we get old and grumpy or even young and grumpy. Gratitude keeps us young. It anchors us to the present moment. It reminds us of what matters most and what matters least and fills us with the resolve to carry on the great mission God has entrusted to us. Gratitude, what matters most and what matters least. It is reordering our hearts because it's a recognition that we could not be who we are or where we are in life without God's grace. Being grateful is acknowledging that there are good and enjoyable things in the world that we have been freely given as a gift. As I put this talk together, I was reminded of a lot of things and even more, a lot of people that I'm grateful for. Being grateful Making it a way of life means it's always a good time to express it, share it. And I hope we will, because that way of living has the power to make our deepest desires our strongest desires, which is just another way of saying the power to make us happy. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time in this place and the chance to be together this morning. Um, we have so much to be grateful for and ask that you would help us to recognize and acknowledge and express our gratitude uh, to both you and the people in our lives. Help us develop the discipline needed to get our hearts back in order. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. We'll see you next week.